The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. If it's easy, it would have been done already. I think about this a lot with behavior change, but this is also applicable to skill acquisition too. If it was easy to teach some of the skills that we're working on with our students, someone else would have taught it to our students already. Some of this learning really takes time, and that's okay. In today's episode, we talked to Bridget McCormick, who's a BCBA, and she gives so much great information on how to use precision teaching to pinpoint our behaviors that we're working on teaching. This process actually will help lead to more fully mastered IEP goals and less staff training and just better mastery of skills altogether, which I think we can all get on board with all of those things. Bridget is the founder and clinical director of Precision ABA, and she has just an expert level knowledge of precision teaching and is going to share with us what that is and how we can apply some of these strategies to our classrooms today. There are so many great light bulb moments in this episode. I'm excited for you to learn from her, and there's so many strategies that we can apply in a lot of different ways. So let's jump right in. 
Okay, Bridget, thank you, first of all, so much. You are such a busy person, so I really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with us. Before we jump in, um, Bridget and I went to grad school together, and I get a lot of messages from people wanting to go into grad school for ABA or become a BCBA and looking for advice. So why did you become a BCBA? Like what brought you to ABA? Sure. Yeah, sure. So I kind of grew up in the world of disability. Both my parents worked with adults with disabilities and my brother has uh, what used to be defined as Asperger's. Um, so he has high functioning autism. And so I would volunteer and my parents met with working with people with disabilities. And so it's kind of my whole life. So when I went to college, I rebelled against that <laughs> and went into English education. So I have my degree in English secondary ed. And then I wanted to learn more about classroom management because you basically go to school and they say, classroom management's really hard. Good luck. And then they send you out there. And so that's how I found ABA was for classroom management. My dream was to be um, working with teachers and helping teachers uh, with classroom management. Um, and then throughout grad school, I found precision teaching, which is kind of the intersection of ABA and education. And that's kind of where I found my home. And so I work on a lot of skill acquisition and building um, behaviors and using curricula and things. And then I also have my ABA background where I'm working on, you know, increasing and, and all the science that comes with that, increasing appropriate and decreasing inappropriate behaviors. Love that. I love that increasing behaviors is what brought you to ABA because so often people think all we do is behavior reduction and you're like, no, 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 I'm here to grow new positive skills. Yeah. 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 Nothing so, better than that day, that first day, you know, as I'm sure everybody knows, like that first day that you see a skill emerge and it's like, yes, that, yeah. keep going with that. I don't know how many times too, like misconceptions of ABA, we could talk about this forever, but I've introduced myself as the BCBA in an IEP meeting. They're like, oh, well, this child doesn't have very many problem behaviors. I'm like, ah, yeah. oh, it's not what I do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So I think this will be very illuminating to show all of the different ways that ABA can be utilized besides just behavior reduction. Yeah. So you mentioned precision teaching. What is that? So precision teaching was developed um, by Ogden Lindsley, who's a student of B.F. Skinner. So it came from the same home of ABA, and he developed it as an application of applied behavior analysis to education. And so his dream was to have teachers using precision teaching um, as part of guiding their decision making in the classroom and, uh, you know, their, their instructional design and decision making. And so um, he developed a lot of different teaching technologies for that. Um, direct instruction comes from that same line of thought. So those of you who've used direct instruction, like language for learning and reading mastery and things, comes from that. Um, Ames Web is kind of also in the vein of, of precision teaching. Um, and so it's all about standard change. So what can we do for a learner each school year in order to accelerate rapid behavior change and learning. So that's kind of what precision teaching is. Overall, it's a system. It's not the actual teaching modality, um, but it's a system of understanding and measuring behavior in order to produce outcomes, like positive outcomes. So rapid behavior change, fluency, building skills to fluency, seeing that rapid growth. So some precision teachers, there's a couple schools that have, you know, their learners go, they grow two grade levels in one year of instruction. Wow. And so wow. they use that technology in order to accelerate instruction, which is super beneficial within special ed because we really need those kids to accelerate rapidly because yes, they have yes. to close that gap. 
So precision teaching is is uh, the system around making those decisions and taking data and um, and looking at things sensitively so that we can ensure those outcomes because we can guarantee them when we understand them and measure them the right way. Love that. All of that. And yeah, you're so right. With special ed, we have a lot of grades oftentimes to catch up on. So if we can increase that rate of learning, I mean, that's what obviously every teacher would want, but it's even more important in special ed. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about pinpointing behaviors today. And I kind of like this word pinpoint because it like makes it sound very specific. And this is very specific, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I talk a lot about when I talk about reducing problem behavior, spending time defining the behavior, because that's a step everyone misses out on. They're like the kid tantrums. And then I'll ask like four staff members, what does a tantrum look like to you? And everyone has a completely different definition, but yeah. we think everyone knows that tantrum means the same thing. But we're yeah. going to kind of talk about this on the other side, on the positive behavior side, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can talk about both. Okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but for the sake of academics, we can talk about it with that too. So there's kind of like four basic steps for precision teaching. And the first one is pinpoint. So that's the, the measuring and defining behavior. Um, and then we measure it and then hopefully use data analysis. And there's, you know, but, but the beauty of, of precision teaching is that everything is written and everything is talked about in plain English. So I feel like yes. ADA is intimidating for people. People are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like a tact <laughs> does not mean labeling things. Tact is something somebody has. Um, and so that's confusing. So um, something that's so nice about PT is it's so accessible. And so it's not something to be afraid of. The fourth step in, in the PT sequence um, is try, try again. And that's kind of the most important thing. If something doesn't work, try something new. Keep trying until something works, um, which I think is something that everybody can benefit from. Don't get yes. stuck. In Wait, things. go through those four steps again. I want to hear those again. Yes. Yeah, so the first the first one's pinpoint. Then we measure and record. We chart it. And then we, so some kind of data display. Obviously the standard data display is, is ideal, but any kind of data display and then try, try again. That's awesome. I mean, even just like those four things can be applied to like everything we do as, you know, teachers, parents, clinicians. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the pinpoint step is kind of the most important because it's what everything else you do hinges on. Mm -hmm. And like you said, people kind of bypass that definition and they just jump into the nitty gritty of what is it going to look like? What interventions am I going to put in, whether it be for academics or for behavior reduction? But with if you take the time to pinpoint, it just makes it so much easier for everybody else. So, so that's the reinforcer for our teachers. It's going to make it easier later, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So the, if you're going to pinpoint a behavior, the way that you do it is you pick an active verb and like some kind of object. Okay. That's it. So an active verb would be something that you have to do actively. So it's not learns, understands, hears, things like that. You're talking about things that happen as an active process. Runs, breaks, selects, says... Those are things that they're actively doing that you can observe the behavior happening. Okay. So the so, goal is you want to be able to see it, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So you pick a verb that you can see, and then what is the object that's engaged with that verb? So writes number. That's super clear. Yeah. There's debate around that. <laughs> is right number. Everyone knows from those two words, you instantly have a definition that your whole team understands. Versus knows numbers. That's a little more right. up for debate, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it could be, you know, writes answer, says answer, um, something that's an active process that you can see. And then what is the like noun or object that is tied to that? So that's the first step Okay, is to figure out what that is. So you can do that for behavior reduction. You can say breaks pencil or kicks desk or swipes paper. Those are all things that you can see and more importantly that you can count. Yes. So you talk about your data collection. You can count that. You know exactly when swipes paper starts and when it ends. There's no question about it. It's one movement that you see. So once you have that understanding, you can use it for those, those behaviors to increase or to decrease then you can take it a step further and define it within that context. So everyone talks about SMART goals. What are the things that go into SMART goals? You know, you want to make sure it's objective and measurable, blah, blah, blah. Objective is not a letter in SMART. <laughs> it's okay. It should be, right? <laughs> it should be, right. Um, so if you, so you can say, you know, um, you know, it's within the context of a tantrum or you can add more to that definition, but the key take home point are really those two words that you're going to train. So the action verb and the object are the two must haves. Yes. So So within some some, like academic programs that you're working on, like what are a few examples related to like skill acquisition of kind of combos there that you use? Yeah, sure. So if you're working on like a receptive ID program, so you're trying to get students to maybe receptively um, find, you know, let, let's just let's just use that. We'll mm-hmm. just say, yeah, there's an array. And so you want them to find the answer from an array of cards. So it would be touches answer or points to answer right. or hand, gives answer. So if you were doing, you know, we talked about writing, so they were going to write a number. Um, if you were going to do a... Um, let's say a spelling program, it could be says letter, and then you have your corrects and incorrects, says letter, correct, says letter, incorrect. Um, And then you have very clear information about that. Awesome. Yeah. So then, but if you say something like tantrums or answers or does spelling, that's not super clear. We don't know where that begins and where that ends. Mm -hmm. If it's a repeatable action that you can see every time, then you have a clear beginning and a clear end. And so then, honestly, there's really not much training that has to go into that definition either. Everyone knows what writes one number means. Yeah, that's true. This would totally decrease staff training time too. Like knows numbers. You're like, nope, writes writes the number. Like you don't have to spend a ton of time with your staff like talking about what that meant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so once you have that, now we're going to take it a step further. And this is something that is going to be a little bit foreign to everybody, but once you understand it, you're like, of course, how could I ever think of it in any other way? So, and that's the concept of learning channels. So uh, a learning channel was developed in the seventies and it's totally different than learning styles. A learning style is an auditory learner or a visual learner. That's not what we're talking about. We can talk about why we're not going to talk about that. (laughs) Once I tell you why we're going to talk about learning channels. So a learning channel is essentially one word that's an input and one word that's an output. So how does the learner take in the behavior that you're expecting? How do they take in the cue or the prompt or the instruction? And then how are they supposed to respond to it? So if we were talking about it behaviorally, it would be what's the SD and what's the response. But if we were talking about it as everyone else in the world talks about it, (laughs) we would say, how do they understand the instruction? And then how do they act on that instruction? So we have an in and an out. How do they understand the instruction and how do they act on the instruction? 
Yes. Love that. That's an easy way to think about it. Yes. So the ins are basically your senses. See, hear, feel, touch, think could be one because they're operating on their environment. There is no external stimuli. It's just that they're freely doing it. Um, Sniff, taste. That's how they're taking in the stimuli or the direction. Okay. And then the output is how they're acting on it. So in academics, it could be touch, select, give, do. So do some kind of action. Could be say, write, circle, whatever that response is that you want to see from them. Okay. So why do we need learning channels? Like why does this matter? Because it's just plain English and it just makes sense. (laughs) So if you say – we're going to do, you know, maybe not with your learners, but let's say with your staff, you're going to say, we're going to do a see, say colors program. There's no question there. See is how they're going to take in the color. Say is how they're going to respond to the color. And so if we take that, so then that would be the learning channel would be see, say. You so they're could have- seeing a picture of a color and then they're saying the name of the color. That's, yes. And that's what we call it. We just call it see, say. Take that information, the pinpointing of the active verb and the object, and we're combining it with the learning channel. So I was jumping ahead for yes, it. Yes, I love it. Sorry. So, <laughs> so you see a card and you say the color. So nice. you take that. So then your see and say become that active verb, and then you have your object. But then you put it together. If you tell the staff, run that as a see, say, see card, say color. That's the only instruction you have to say to your staff because there's no question. See these cards that I'm handing you, they say the color. Instead of being like, hey, can you do color ID? Right, right. Because if you hand them a stack of color cards, you know, you spent your time laminating and making sure that you have all these cards and they're ready and they're in an array of colors and, you know, you have all your stimuli and you give it to the staff and say, can you run this? Well, one of them is going to run it as a C touch. So they're going to see the colors and touch the answer. Or they're probably going to hear. There are probably two inputs for the receptive. See the array, hear the instruction, touch the answer. Mm -hmm. So one person's going to lay them out on the table and say, find blue. And the kid's going to touch blue. Another person might hold up blue and say, find the same or find blue. And then it's a matching program. Then it's a C match. Other people will run it as a CSA and hold up the card and say, what color is this? And then they answer blue. So those are three different ways to run a program with the exact same materials. Yeah. But if they no, run this as a C card, say color, there's no question. No one can run that differently. And that's like really with our, with our staff, like I always talk about our like paraprofessionals and teacher's aides as being like extensions of ourselves. We want programs run exactly the way we envision because we made specific choices. Like maybe this child doesn't have a lot of verbal skills yet. That's why we're working on them selecting the right answer. And I see so many staff conflicts arise from these simple miscommunications that you're talking about. Like, hey, run this as a color ID. And then a well-intentioned, you know, professional is doing what they think they're supposed to do. And it wasn't what the teacher intended. And no one likes to be told they were do, doing something wrong. So now the you know, feelings are hurt and you have to correct. And it's a whole situation. So yeah. in spending the time, which is actually not a lot of time, but in just taking the next step of adding the learning channel, you could potentially avoid all of that. That's right. 
And even if you take the time and you have, you know, in all of your free time in your life, you take (laughs) time to write up, you know, when given cards, the student will label the colors on the cards. You could do that. And that gives enough instruction, but it's not four words. That's true. Four words is see card, say color. That's it. Yep. That's it. And then if your staff know that you're counting corrects and incorrects, then it's says correct color, says incorrect color. And then your data collection's there too. So you don't even have to train on that data collection piece. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So how does this, yeah, how does this apply to data collection? Because this sounds like it'll make data collection a lot easier. Yeah. So if you're running an IEP goal and you have it put down, you know, that you're, you're running it in a certain learning channel. So let's say um, you're doing counting. Okay, so it's see a pile of counting bears and say each number that corresponds with the bear. Okay, so it would be see count basically. Mm -hmm. So then you say each bear counts as one. One correct, one incorrect. So see pile, count bears. One, two, three. Now we have one, two, three responses. Are they correct count or incorrect count? So once you have things set up that it's a learning channel and you and your staff knows it's a correct or error, either way it's correct or error, then they can just collect data in that way. Mm-hmm. If they have it in cards, then they have two separate piles for corrects and errors, and then they can count them up at the end and not even have to worry about taking data in the middle. Sometimes that's like the struggle with data collection as well, is if it's more subjective, people like, it's hard to summarize in the moment. Did they like mostly get that right or mostly get that wrong? Like, I think that's why everyone avoids taking data on social skills. Cause it's like, I don't know. Was that a correct conversation? Right. I, my IEP goal said 80%. Sure. Like right. but if we're really specific, you don't even have to like take any time to think about, you know, did it happen or not? Cause it's so straightforward. Right. Right. Says hi. Yeah. Either See, did it or did it. Yeah. Right. Either did it or didn't. Sees Pierre says hi. So oh, I love that. Oh, I love that for social skills. And then you have it right there. So how does so, this apply to IEP goals? Like could teachers be writing IEP goals like and applying these tools to an IEP goal? So I think that that would make everyone's life easier. <laughs> there are so many IEP goals that are like, I want to get all the quantifiers in there. So like when given a a situation and teacher model and instruction, the learner will identify emotions of others in a realistic scenario and a contrived scenario (laughs) in which those emotions might be felt in four out of five trials. It's like, let me give you everything you need to know. And this IP goal is now like 72 words. (laughs) Right, right, right. And so that's great because that, you know, everyone's well-intentioned. They're trying to be super thorough, but they could just say, see video scenario, say motion. And then it's a five word IP goal. So obviously your IP goals need to have, you know, the mastery criteria and things in it. But when somebody says, um, in an IEP goal that a learner will receptively identify something, that's super clear to say learner will receptively identify 
um, let's say emotions for now so that we're not stuck on colors. Um, learner will receptively identify emotions from an array of three. So that is clear. Receptive, we know, is some kind of selection response. But are they selecting it? What are they seeing when they're selecting it? Are they seeing one example and then matching it? So is it a C-match? Are they seeing it, uh, seeing an array of three and hearing happy and then pointing to happy? Are they watching a video and then matching that? Are they um, seeing the or hearing the instruction and then finding it and navigating it on their device? Those are all different ways to receptively identify something. And so if you're able to clearly define it, you know what you're doing. And the person who gets the IEP after you, who inherits your student next year, knows what you're doing. And I think by controlling for that, I think a lot of times teachers have these goals and they're like, well, it's really great that I can do it in different response modalities. So I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I want to say learner will learn their full uppercase alphabet. Let's say they're going to they're gonna label all letters. And I want to be able to have that opportunity to increase or decrease the array or add prompting or change the font or whatever. And that's true. But if you control for it, it allows for clear decision-making for you because you're not comparing apples to oranges in your data. Well, this day it was a C sort and this day it was a C say. Yeah. Well, you can't compare them because they're different skill sets. But if you were to benchmark them and say quarter one is going to be a C sort, quarter two is going to be a C array, here instruction, point to answer – Quarter three is going to be C array point to target say answer. And then quarter four is going to be C single picture say answer. Then you can say the learner understands their emotions. And then the annual goal is that they are able to label emotions in lots of different response modalities. But then you were clear and your aides were clear and everyone knows exactly what they can do. Because there's plenty of times that teachers one year say, they mastered their goal. And then the second year, they're like, no, they didn't. Yeah. It does, you know, it goes to a new teacher, but it's be, it's likely because it's a different response modality. Yes. The apples to oranges thing like really jumped out at me when you said that because we do that so often. Yeah. Like I like resonate with everything you just said from the teacher's perspective. You don't want to write this goal that's too, too specific because you're like, well, we have a whole year. How am I going to work on just this tiny thing all year? But at the same time, if you keep changing it up, changing it up, how are you ever knowing if there's progress being made? So I think that idea that you had is just so, so helpful of having that overarching goal and having every quarter be a little bit of a different kind of piece of that pie that contributes to that big goal instead of just, you know, what a lot of times we do towards the end of the year, you just change like the mastery criteria for each benchmark. Like, oh, it's going to be 70%, 75, 80, 85. Like, okay, done. Like, first of all, that's not how learning works. And uh, second of all, the 80% mastery criteria like really gets under my skin because that's not full mastery for a lot of skills. Like I always tell people if I rode my, if I drove my car with 80% mastery, I would not be here right now, but anyways, I digress. But that's such a great way to kind of like conceptualize what the year is for instruction on that skill that we can kind of just like master each piece and kind of move along on that is just would be so would be, I think, easier too to like approach the skill. Absolutely. And, and another 
kind of default that I see teachers get into. So the first one is to change the mastery criteria and the other is to change the prompt level. Yes. Yeah. So if there's more prompts, maybe they'll be successful and then we'll fade prompts, which ideally, yes, but it may be that they're not ready for a C say mm-hmm. they need it to be a C here point first. So it doesn't matter if you're going to prompt, this is happy. My turn. What is it? It's happy. That's right. You tell me, is it happy? Like, you know, yeah. like, this air correction. And it's like, all they're learning to do is echo you when if you just scaled it back and gave them an array of three and said, find happy, and then they selected it. And then they under- had a receptive understanding of happy. Then when it came time to label it expressively, they would be able to do it every time because they have that. So you don't, you're not stuck also in your mode that you chose in September. Yeah. February. Let's talk through this emotion example for a second. Cause I, you have so many good ideas here and I don't want anyone to miss it. So a lot of times how we might write an emotion goal is kind of like what you're saying. We'll identify 10 new emotions. You know, we throw that 80% mastery criteria in there. Cause then it like, you know, saves our butt a little. I kind of think that's why sure. like, I don't have to hit hundred. And then, yeah, in those benchmarks, you're like, we'll do it with, you know, three prompts. We'll do it with two prompts. We'll do it with one prompt, no prompt and think like, okay, that's my year. Yeah. So let's talk through what's an alternative for what four benchmark skills could be using these learning channels. So sure. where, where would you start maybe just hypothetical student? So typically learners learn receptively before expressive. So they have an easier time with receptive understanding than expressive. This is not true. All of us have, I'm sure met somebody who can talk a lot and not, <laughs> not, not even talking about our students. They can talk all day about a topic and you're like, that did not, that's not true, <laughs> but they know <laughs> how to talk about it. So that's not necessarily true, but, um, overall receptive is easier. So if you want to start with an array and you can start with a smaller array, see array of three pictures here, happy point to happy. So they're seeing three different pictures of emotions. They're seeing a picture of happy. You could. And, or you can hear the instruction. Okay, Either so they're seeing three pictures, the teacher's saying, show me happy, and they're pointing to happy. That's right. So that would be one skill we work on. Yes. And yep. then what would our next kind of benchmark, potential benchmark be? So then you can jump to see array, point to picture. So the teacher's not giving any instruction. See array, point to picture, say emotion. Ooh, okay. So there's three pictures out. Mm -hmm. Teacher doesn't say anything. Johnny points to the first one and says, that boy's happy or happy. Awesome. Love that. You could do, this is probably an easier one, but you could do C sort. So see one card and three piles of the three different emotions and match or sort those pictures. So put all the happy faces together, all the sad faces. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So that's another way that you could teach understanding of emotions. Eventually you get to the point that it's see emotion on either a real person or in a video and Mm -hmm. say emotion. That would be the next step because you're taking it out of pictures. Yeah. Or maybe you're doing it as see a video, say emotion. So you don't even have necessarily their full face. You see a whole context about what's going on. So see video, say, so watching a video on someone uh, of something and saying like, oh, that person's angry. So that's kind of what that would look like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many options, even just in like a specific thing like emotions. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And you can build in different emotions. You can add in why you can add in how that person feels versus how you'd feel, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody (laughs) eats broccoli and is happy versus somebody who eats broccoli and feels disgusted. You know, those are two (laughs) different reactions. So, you know, the, you guys know that the options are endless. Those that's what, that's what you do as teachers. You know that there's so many different skills that you can teach, but by controlling for those variables, you can extend the skill and make sure that they're able to do it in different modalities. Mm -hmm. Too often people get stuck in receptive versus expressive and they get stuck in, you know, I need to jump to answering WH questions. I need to make sure that they know how to answer WH questions, you know, or, or some other expressive, you know, But if you want them to answer, let's say, let's say what doing questions, because that's kind of a good place where people typically start when they're doing WH questions. If you're going to answer what doing, so what is this person doing? And you can teach rote responses. Oh, they're able to answer to 16 scenarios, 16 of 20 Mm -hmm. uh, scenarios of what is this person doing? But if you start off with like C point to verbs, C here point, so see array of pictures, hear target, point answer. And then you move to... Explain what that looks like for a minute before you jump. Yes, yeah. see array of pictures, uh-huh. hear targeted verb. So here like jumping. The teacher yeah. says jumping and the child points to the picture of someone jumping. That's right. Okay. Right. Um, and then you move into a, you know, maybe you do it. I like to teach verbs. This is an aside and not relevant to the conversation, but I love it. I like to teach verbs using GIFs because they're fun and they're moving and it's hard to depict verbs in pictures, but maybe you do two GIFs on a PowerPoint screen Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. they they have to discriminate it. So see moving picture in array of two Mm -hmm. here, jumping point to jumping. And then you can move to see one picture and then say the verb. So they have to independently generate the response. So they're seeing the gif of jumping and they're saying jumping. That's right. You could do here, jump, and do the action. So they have to complete the action of verbs. So those are lots of different ways that you can teach verbs and get a full, complete understanding of the concept of verbs. And then when it comes time to what what are they doing, they're like, oh, I can answer that no matter what I'm looking at. I can watch the kids on the playground. I can see a picture of somebody. I can watch a video and I can answer what doing across all of those. Oh my gosh. I hope everyone is having like a huge light bulb moment right now because that is just, that is so important. I think so often we get stuck on like one set of flashcards or one thing or the IP goal and and it doesn't generalize. So it's like, what is the point? Like if they've memorized 16 flashcards and can answer that rote response, like fine, you can pat yourself on the back if you want, but like, don't feel good about yourself because they really don't have that skill down. And like, then, then really what is the point? They need to be able to do this skill at Dunkin' Donuts and at home and in high school and with their friends. And so if you do all of the legwork work like you're talking about and kind of thinking through all the different ways to work on that skill, I could see potentially someone thinking like, oh, well, that's wasting time. I just want to get to like, you know, the trophy mark, the what doing questions. Yeah. But that will almost come on its own. Yes. Yeah. It does come out naturally. So once they have a a full understanding of a skill, that top tier skill, that kind of what everything is gathering up to be, it comes out by itself. Yeah. Which is what like natural learning does, you know, 
Right. My, my daughter says things all the time where I'm like, where did you learn that word or that skill? And it's like, she's heard it and applied it. And she has like the skill of like relating what words, like what a word means and can just like she's apply. Seen it be defined in so many different contexts. Yeah. She gathers up all those threads and then is able to tie it together and use it appropriately. So that's what like we're teaching our kids to do. We're giving like them all like the, I keep using like pies and bricks, like all these weird analogies. But that's just how I'm envisioning it in my head is like, yeah, I'll, you have all these different skills and it just comes together and you don't have to be taught the big piece because you already have it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you try to jump to the top brick, so if you're using your bricks to lay a foundation and you try to jump to the top brick, it's going to fall through Mm -hmm. because there's Mm -hmm. nothing supporting it. But if you can develop a full understanding of the concept before getting to that top brick, then it has a really strong foundation. And so it'll stay because people do jump to the what doing, but anybody who has any child who's over the age of seven can see they worked on this IEP goal two years ago and they're not maintaining it yeah. because they didn't have a full understanding of it. And so people tend to check boxes and say, yep, they know how to do this. They mastered the goal as written. But if it's not functional mastery, what does that truly do? Yeah. You're not giving them more opportunities to make friends or have jobs or learn new skills. Right. So if they can answer your scripted response that you help them learn, like what are some colors? And they're like, red, blue, green. Yeah, what are some other colors? Red, blue, green. Well, they know how to answer that question. Check, they answered that question. But that's not an understanding of what the question means. You know, they should be able to answer that and answer additional questions and tell me some colors and what are these colors and name five colors and list colors. Like those are all things that they could be, should be able to do to show a complete understanding of that concept. So a teacher that's listening now and is like, has, you know, a child or a parent that has a child, like, oh my gosh, we've been working on, you know, the top tier skill for years and years and are having no success because we don't have the foundation what should their next step be? Like what should, how do they reflect back on maybe what's missing and start to build up that foundation? Yeah. So that is the question. (laughs) How much um, time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) That is the question because it's, it comes down to how do we learn and in what order do we learn? And the only way that we can truly understand that is by having enough experiences in your learning history to be able to identify that. So the first step really, what I would say is to create a list of um, all the different targets. So the different learning channels and pinpoints that can go into a certain skill and then just test them. Okay. Can they do it in this response modality? Can they do it in this response modality? And then find where the gap is. And then so if like, if someone's listening, like, oh my gosh, I've been working on my child answering like, what's, what's your name for forever? We just can't get it. You would go through and go through those learning channels. So these are those sent, those action words, the senses, the input, the output that we talked about a while ago and list all the ways that that can be targeted on. That's what you would kind of do. And then just sit there and be like, can you do it? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yep. And like, I mean, there's no obviously number on there, but like if someone goes through all those and you have, you know, let's say 15 different targets, that might be okay. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Because they will, you hopefully will start to see that generalization too across the different modalities. But if they aren't able to answer it, because what's your name is a hard one, because that's how we typically receive personal information. So, you know, just to kind of take a sidestep from what you were asking, and then I'll come back to it. Um, I've seen IEP goals that are like, will 
put the address in order. So if we put that in the learning channel, you know, you see pieces of address Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then sort them into order. So, or sequence them, which is cool. That's a first step. And then you move into receptive ID of the address. So see array of addresses, select mine, and then you can move into like a C say or a C write. So C paper or free, uh, C paper, write out address, um, because that's the terminal goal. So being able to sequence your address is really a useless skill. Let's be honest. No one's going to be like, here's a four and here's a three and here's a two. Like put that in order of your house number. No (laughs) one's going to do that. So people want to jump to the terminal goal. But if you can't have a a solid foundation around it, then it doesn't you're not going to get to the end goal. Um, So to answer your question, yes, if there's a lot of different response modalities, there's a lot of different learning channels that you can do. It's okay to start there because you're going to teach them. So, oh, we can loop in. Oh, I'm going to sidestep again. Sorry. Love it. Um, so to go back to why we don't talk about learning styles instead of learning channels. So they kind of are similar, right? Like, oh, my learning style is auditory or visual. Like for me, I way prefer to see things visually. But all that means is that I've had more practice and contacted more reinforcement when things were delivered in a C input. So I'm able to respond better. So either I have more practice or it's been praised more or contacted more reinforcement when I can see it. Yeah. And we tend as teachers to go into those learning styles and say, because we experience it. Like I, if I only can Like if it's strongest for me to see things, then I want to see things. But the world is auditory. So Mm -hmm. I can't see conversations. I need to strengthen my auditory repertoire. And so we have to do that with the kids too. So if we just go to their learning styles, we're teaching them how to respond in one modality that's their strength, except that we're not teaching them to understand the rest of the world which is responding in different modalities. So learning channels are key because you can use the strengths to support the weaknesses. But just because it's a weakness doesn't mean you don't touch it. It means that you spend more time on it to teach it. So if you see that you have a, like a hear question, say answer. So I'm going back. Yeah. Hear question, say answer. I'm like drawing, I'm like mapping out my answer. <laughs> yeah, no, I like it. I'm a visual learner. I'm like, yeah. but over here is this category of question. <laughs> and now we're going back to the original. Um, so if you had that original target was hear question, say answer. And hear input is not strong for them. They don't, they struggle with auditory input. Then they're going to struggle with a hear input. Mm. But if you add a C, so they're like C question or C picture of a target or C arbitrary symbol that I can just focus on. It really doesn't matter. It totally depends on the kid and where they're at. It does matter. It depends on where the kid and where they're at. But I can't, you know, it's not the one answer. But if I can see something and then I pair it with the here, the C strengthens the here. And then okay, they can, so I lo- this is this is a good, really good point. So can you yeah. go through that with an example? It doesn't have to be what what's your name. It can yeah. be if you want, yeah. but any yeah. example to show that because this okay. is gonna this is a really good point. That I think a lot of teachers could use. Yeah, absolutely. So if your terminal goal is to get to let's just let's use verbs because we already talked about it. So if your terminal goal is to get to what doing, what is this person doing? So here, what is this person doing? Say answer. But here is weak. You pair it with the C sort, the C pictures of verbs and sort it in categories. C array here, 
target and point to the answer. And you use all of that visual support to eventually pair it with the here. So then you get to the point that you're, you see that array. You can hear the target. Okay, now I'm pairing C and here together. So it helps strengthen the here repertoire. And then so by the time you get to what is this person doing, they're like, oh, okay, I can hear that question because that's strong now for me. Because I've practiced so it with the support of the visuals that I needed. That's right. Which like, I mean, not even to overgeneralize, but I just think so many of us see so many learners, not now see is becoming like a pun in my head, um, <laughs> work with so many learners that that is a big struggle is the auditory is really hard. Um, and that's why our pictures are, you know, our classrooms are exploding with pictures and board maker because a lot of our kids do respond to visuals, but it's using those visuals purposefully, you know, in combination with our verbal language to build that up because we live in a verbal world and a language rich world. Absolutely. And so if those visuals are key to learn the skill, you want to use them to learn the skill, but they're not the key to functional mastery Mm -hmm. because you don't have board maker pictures when somebody says, what is that guy doing? Or what are you doing? No one's going to be like pointing in with a quick visual. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we have to get to that functional mastery. I'm not suggesting that we don't ever touch that terminal goal, but if you can fill up the skills at the lower level, you build that solid foundation, then you'll see them be able to do that higher level skill yeah. that it's functional. And the the scaling back, I think, makes people nervous because especially when we've got kids that are older, you just feel like you're wasting time and you're racing against the clock and you want to push and push and push. And I use like a specific, it's like a Google image of a faulty, a crack in a foundation and I can picture it and I use it in like almost every talk I do on academics because that's like overarching where I see such a problem is that we just push ahead and push ahead and have all these like quote unquote mastered goals, yes. but they catch up with you. Like learning builds. Like if you never have a strong mastery of number identification, you better believe you're going to struggle on addition and word problems and multiplication because you don't know your dang numbers. Like, Good. and so I think sometimes people feel hesitant to scale back because, oh my gosh, we have to do this and we want to stay near grade level, but you're just going to kind of keep running into a wall. Right. And the curriculum does tie your hand sometimes, the the state standards and things with those things. But if it's a benchmark to be able to scale back on those things, your kids will make faster progress if you have controlled programming. Mm-hmm. Instead of jumping between modalities, they will make faster progress if you control for each learning channel and really focus on that and then move on to the next one. And then you okay, can say that in a different way because yeah. that, that's a good point. So yeah. Within the benchmark, explain what that means one more time. Sure. So if you have that solid foundation, if you can scale back and work on those basic pinpoints, Mm -hmm. you learn faster. So if your terminal goal is what doing questions, you're still working on something that's probably age appropriate and in alignment with state standards. But if you start off with easier learning channels, then you will accelerate progress faster instead of working on what doing for 12 months. Yeah. Because anybody who's done what doing before they have a full (laughs) verb repertoire has worked on memorizing the sentences for 12 months. But if you start with the easier skills, you're still working, you're working towards that terminal goal. 
it's more like if you, you know, certain schools do more like objectives instead of benchmarks. Mm-hmm. So this is the objectives that you're taking to get there. And then it's a little bit more flexible instead of saying you have to benchmark it. But these are the things that you're working on in order to get up to that annual goal of being able to answer WH questions. Yeah. And when but you piece you, it yeah. apart like that too, you're going to spend every day on the same skill instead of like, one day trying it this way, one day trying it that way, and then we're sick this day, and then the next day we try it a third day, and soon mm-hmm. it's been like a week and a half, and you haven't even done it the same way at all. So how are you supposed to make any progress when you right. keep jumping around? You have no measurable progress at all because you can't compare apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. And you, the student hasn't made progress either because they're like, what? Yeah. What? Now all I have to do? Like, I I thought that I had to do it this way, you know? Yeah, it's it's hard for our kids when we keep changing, like, the structure and the context of things. Like, they never get a chance to get comfortable. Right, right. And truly show you what they know. Mm -hmm. And if you can scale it back and only do one modality at a time, they're like, I got this. Let me show you what I can do, and then we can make it harder. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we've already talked so much about this. Okay, anything that we, like, I want to, like, summarize and do our big take-home points, but... Anything yeah. we missed and or like that you can think of? I feel like we talked through a lot of good examples. Yeah, I think I think this is really so I said at the beginning that once you understand it, it's like, of course, because this is how we interact with the world. Mm-hmm. This is not a new shiny thing. Like this is just giving words to what we do all the time. So I think that being able to conceptualize this in a clear way gives meaning to what's already in our brains. Mm -hmm. We know, like you said, you want your staff to run things the way that you do. And so if you can make it clear, then they will, you know, and then it'll help make faster progress for the kids too, to be able to, to fly through these different objectives and be able to get through things and show you what they truly can do. So to summarize what the benefits are, (laughs) it's plain English. Everyone can understand what you're talking about. Huge. You, it allows you to, plan for things, you know, you set up your instruction and then it runs on its own. You know, you have, you teach, you know, you can summarize what a learning channel is in eight seconds. You know, it's how we take in the information and how we spit it back out. And then everyone's on the same page about that. So you have your, your pinpoints and what your targets are. That's fast staff training. It's fast data collection because it's either correct or not correct. Uh, Maybe we'll call it a not yet instead of an incorrect because it's still developing. That's what we would call it in precision teaching is a not yet learning opportunity. Um, So it it helps plan. It helps you facilitate planning for your instruction and your practice. It allows us to extend across lots of different examples so we can make sure that there's a full mastery of the skill for the learner. And it helps remind us that students do respond in different ways. So we can't say that one thing's mastered because they can do it in one modality. It reminds us that there are lots of different modalities. So don't get stuck in just one thing or just one receptive way and one expressive way. There's lots of different receptive learning channels and there's lots of expressive different learning channels. So by making sure that you cover all of those learning channels, you're making sure to cover how they're going to interact with the world, how they can interact with those stimuli, and it's also way more fun. <laughs> because it's more fun to be successful. Like yeah. if you're like a lot of the examples we've talked about, like having one overarching goal that you work on for 12 months where it's right. a struggle and we're fading prompts and there's a lot of incorrects and it's memorization. That's not fun for the kid. Right. Or the teacher. Yeah. Or the teacher. Right. 
Like if I have to say, what is he doing one more time? I'm going to scream. I can't imagine how the kid feels, you know? So it's more fun for them too. And if, if every time they sit down, it's like, what's this? What's this? It's like, can I do it a different way? Because I don't want to hear what's this. And the teacher doesn't want to say what's this. So it allows for it to be more fun for both people too, because you're making sure that they can interact with their world in different ways, which is key. Oh my gosh. This was so, so helpful. Thank you so much. If you listen to this in your car, I feel like you should re-listen to it when you have a pad of paper (laughs) and can take notes. Um, Because I know sometimes, you know, some of the language, even if it's not technical, it's you know, it's trying to, when you're trying to think of something in a new way, it kind of like makes your brain hurt a little bit. But I think that's good yeah. for all of us to kind of like push ourselves to approach something like writing IP goals, which I know everyone gets super jazzed about, but yeah. approach it in a new way um, because that's where your instruction starts from that goal. And when you like call it in and throw the 80% mastery criteria on something that doesn't make sense, you regret it later. So spending a little bit of time thinking up front can make, you know, such a big difference, as Bridget said, in so many ways. So will be so worth it. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you again. I feel, I hope you will come back and teach us more about precision teaching because I think that there's a lot of benefits that a lot of classrooms can have from it. So thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to learn more, I'm going to put a lot of links in the show notes for some different resources related to precision teaching. I can't wait to have Bridget back on to learn more from her. If you liked this episode, make sure to follow us or rate our podcast. Thank you. If you would have told me a few years ago that my favorite part of my job is getting up in front of sometimes a few hundred people and giving a presentation on data or behavior academics, I would have thought you were crazy. I did not always like public speaking. Actually, to be totally honest, public speaking was something I used to be pretty afraid of. But now it's literally my favorite part of my job. I love being in a room of my people, of the special ed world, teachers and parents and clinicians, and everyone that's on the front lines that's working so hard for our students to give them the best opportunities and the best classroom experience. I love being in a room of everyone that understands how hard this job can be, but also how amazing it is and how important those little victories are on a daily basis. When I do a PD, my goal is to bring value. I want to bring action items, ideas and strategies that you can do tomorrow in your classroom. I have sat through too many professional developments that either didn't apply to me or were too hypothetical and philosophical. And my special ed heart always wanted to know, what do I do next? What do I do tomorrow? If you are interested in learning more about how I can come to your school to do a professional development, please visit theautismhelper.com backslash speaking. There's a contact form as well as a lot of information about all of the different sessions I give. I'm happy to answer any questions and work with your school district. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. 
You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.